Um, wanted to follow up on one thing from last week. If you were here, uh, we had a heavier message on Genesis 34, which was uh, kind of about sexual abuse and, and Dinah and some really tough things that happened. Uh, one area that I think I would just would have clarified a little bit more, done a little bit differently, was just a better follow-up. Um, so uh, what I mean by that is if you have been impacted by sexual abuse or you have been a victim of sexual abuse or just something has happened that in that area that you would like to talk to someone, um, I, I just would encourage you to fill out your connection card and just write, I want to talk about Genesis 34. Um, I realized last week we didn't have like a formal follow-up. I think when we talk about things like that, we should. And so I apologize, that's our miss. Um, but if that's something that like, I really want to talk to a pastor or another leader at the church, whether it's a man or a woman, um, just fill that out. We'll be in touch with you and we'll figure out the best way to connect you with the right people. Um, I know that that's, you know, that topic is so heavy and brings a lot of emotions and a lot of memories for a lot of people. Um, we just want to be sensitive to that. So if that's you, if you're like, I want to talk to someone about something that's happened to you, something you've done, just fill this out and say, I want to talk about Genesis 34. So Genesis 35 and 36, still kind of heavy, a lot less heavy than last week. Um, but Genesis 35 and 36, that's where we're at today. So a few weeks ago, I woke up pretty early um, to go and finish a sermon. And if you know me, I know, you know, like I like, love to go all over the city and do all kinds of things. And so that particular Friday, I woke up early and I biked down to the north end. I biked from Brookline to the north end and went to Thinking Cup um, super early, like when it opened, like 7 a.m. So I was one of the first people there. Um, and so it was interesting just, just like observing over the hours of being there, like the wave after wave of, of people that came. So um, myself, when I got there at 7 a.m., it was with a bunch of older people that were sitting there and reading newspapers um, or reading some kind of book and just like enjoying the time to themselves early in the morning as they drink coffee. And, and I was a little bit like, is this, like, is this your life? Like I'm a little envious of that. Right, so that's, that's the first wave of people that come through Thinking Cup. The, the second wave of people um, is the people that are just on their way to work. Right? They're getting their coffee to go, they're getting their pastry to go, they're not talking to anyone except for the cashier, and like maybe they're even on you know, a work call on their way. The third wave of people were the tourists because we live in that kind of city and it's that time of year. And so um, they came through after like the 9 a.m. work rush. And then the last group of people, it was super interesting, the last group of people were local Bostonians. They didn't show up till like 10.30 or 11. Um, and, and more interestingly, is I think these people were not just local to Boston. I, I could tell because of their accent, okay? Uh, I think they were local like to the North End. It was, it was just super interesting hearing their conversation. So all these groups of people, you can imagine the waves and different types of conversations that I overheard, right? Whether it's tourists from a different state or a different country just talking about what it's like to be here, what they're going to do for that day, or people on their way to work that are like a little stressed and running late, or um, the people who are keeping to themselves with the newspaper that aren't talking and look quite peaceful. Um, but interestingly, interestingly, the Bostonians had the most interesting conversations. Maybe that doesn't surprise you. It surprised me. And to be honest, it's, it's partially because they were talking about Jesus. So like, of course, my ears perk up. But it was extremely interesting. They kept using this phrase. They kept using this phrase, if you love Jesus, you blank. If you love Jesus, you go to church. If you love Jesus, you serve the community. If you love Jesus, you do this. If you love Jesus, you don't do that. If you love Jesus, fill in any kind of moral, ethical command or any kind of do or don't. If you love Jesus, that's what you do. And now, we know that's partially true, right? If you know your Bible, Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? Keep my commandments, obey my commandments. We know that's partially true, but, but they kept missing like the main thing. 
they kept missing the main thing that undergirds it all. If you love Jesus, if you're here and you're a Christian, it's not because you go to church. It's not because you do this certain thing and don't do this certain thing. Or it's not because you follow the rules in a certain way or treat people in a certain way. If you love Jesus, it's because Jesus loved you first. Or to use verbiage that's a little more relevant to our passage today, if if you're committed to Jesus, it's because Jesus was committed to you and is committed to you first. And so this tiny little conversation that I overheard, I I was at this table looking out the window and they were to my right. This tiny little conversation that I overheard, um, I, I really believe represents the majority of the way Bostonians and Americans and probably people across the world view Christianity or view the Christian religion. Right, and, and honestly, like this is, I'll admit this is slightly tangential to our passage, but like uh, I, I, we're going to bring it all together. But I'm just thinking of like the thousands of millions of people that think of Christianity as like do or don't, or think that your love for God is made valid or real by something you do. But really, it's God loving you first, Jesus loving you. First, and I think, especially when we're in a book like Genesis, it's really important to remember that. Like, it's, it's really important that we keep this at the front of our minds because Genesis, it's, it's been phenomenal, right? We've been looking at what is God doing in and through Genesis and in and through the people, and we're looking at, like, what, what are the people doing in Genesis? How are they succeeding and failing at their walks with God? And, and Paul even tells us to use, like, the things that are written in the former days as instruction. So we are doing these things rightly. We're looking at these things as a way to live our life. But I just, I just want to remind us and remind myself, as we talk about these things week in and week out, what we should and shouldn't be doing, how we should and shouldn't be living, how we can and can't imitate Old Testament saints, I just remind us that these are not the things that make someone a Christian. Right? They may make up the Christian life. They may make up the things that Christians do and don't do, but they don't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is God's love for you and then you accepting and trusting him in that. Just a reminder, a big reminder, but a reminder. And I want that to be at the forefront of our minds because again, we're gonna look at Jacob. We're gonna look at something he did and something that we ought to do as well. Because we see Jacob in our passage in a certain sense, he's recommitting himself to God. He's recommitting himself to God. And to be honest, it's a little hard to see I was talking to someone before the service. I was like, you got this thing happening over here. You got this thing happening over here. This, God spoke to him here. He made this, he purified himself here. This person died. This person was born and this person slept with this person. What? So it's a little hard to see. But over the time, over, over the course of our time, I hope, I hope it'll become clear. And with Jacob, we've been tracking with him for a long time. I don't know if you've realized this. We've been tracking with him since the Sunday after Easter. So almost two months now. Genesis 25 is when we kind of were introduced to him. And this is his concluding passage concluding chapter. He's not, he's not like dying or it's not that we never hear from him again, um, but the story shifts from focusing on Jacob to focusing on his son, Joseph. And he only has little moments of, of airtime here and there. So this, this is his concluding chapter. I find it interesting that his concluding chapter is one of recommitting to God. And so as we look at this, as we consider this, our big takeaway Our main idea is this. The Christian life is a series of recommitments to God. 
The Christian life is a series of recommitments to God over and over and over again until you die. And I know that sounds like exhausting and maybe even like a little grim, but I hope as we move through the passage, you'll see that there's, uh, it's, it's a good thing and it's something we need. So Genesis 35, in the very beginning of the passage, the first thing God says to Jacob is arise and go up to Bethel. If you remember, Jacob's encountered God at Bethel already. He's kind of already been there. He named it, right? Seven, eight chapters ago, 20 plus years ago, Bethel is practically a holy place. Like that's, it's, its name translates as the house of God. And so more than God telling Jacob to go back to a particular place, he's actually saying, God, or Jacob, come back to, to me. Right, remember me, make a recommitment to me. And as we'll see in a minute, he and the people around him have wandered away. Wandered away. So we'll work through three things, three things in light of this big idea. We'll just ask why, we'll talk about how, we'll talk about what to expect. Why, why is the Christian life a series of recommitments to God? How, we see Jacob committing himself in a very specific way. So how then do we recommit ourselves to God and what to expect? What I mean by that is certain things happen when you live the Christian life. Certain things happen when you recommit to God and we shouldn't be surprised by those things. So why, how, and what to expect? Why is the Christian life of series of recommitting to God? Why does Jacob need to recommit himself? Well, if you know anything about the Bible, it's, it's a really long story about how God's people over time are really good at remaining faithful to him. Yeah, someone gets it, thank you. Yeah. Some of you guys are like, yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> It's the opposite, right? Like we aren't even 50 chapters into a 1,200 chapter Bible and we have seen this emerge as one of the biggest themes of the book so far. With virtually every character, whether it's Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, wandering off from God is a theme for all of them. So why is the Christian life a series of recommitments to God? It's because we are wandering people. We wander off from God time and time and time and time again. And it carries on far past Genesis, right? Whether it's it's everyone in Genesis we see, but it's also the Israelites when they're in slavery in in, in Egypt and then they go out in the wilderness. It's just a series of wandering off from God or um, the nation states of, of Israel and Judah. They wander off from God all the way up to the apostles, the early church and to today. We are a wandering people and we need moments where we come back. We need moments where we seriously recommit ourselves to God, his purposes, his plans. We need these moments. And what's dangerous about wandering from God, we see this in scripture and we see this in our own lives, is it's really subtle, like super, super subtle. Right, the scripture doesn't say, but I kind of like curious the way it reads. I wonder if Jacob didn't realize he was wandering. If you remember, he settled in Shechem. Most scholars estimated he stayed there for 10 years. And so, understandably, we all experience this. Maybe the cares of the world, um, he just kind of piled in on top of him and he took his eyes off of God. Like, you're a big family, you're settling in a new city. There's a lot of work to do there. He's got a lot of people and a lot of things with him. He's got to get his house in order. He's got to do this, that, that. The The cares of the world probably weighed down on him. On top of that, at some point, Genesis 34 happens. 
here last week, right? We don't know when it happens within his time frame of being in Shechem. We can probably safely assume it's earlier on in that 10 years. But it's interesting, we said this last week, that God is not mentioned in that chapter, like at all. And so maybe, maybe at that point in time, Jacob was already wondering. Maybe that's why God was not mentioned at all. It's because Jacob, his family, everyone around him has been wandering off from God. And, and, and maybe he didn't even realize it's happening. I think a lot of us in the room can probably connect that with our own stories, right? Far too often, it's really easy for us to wonder. Like, at least for me too, like especially the past few years, it's been super easy to wander from God. My, my wife and I, we had a kid not even two years ago. I was finishing up seminary. Um, we just had all these things going on in life. Two moves in two years. No, three moves in three years. And we've moved every year we've been here. Come on. All these things, it's super easy for me to take my eyes off God, for me to wander from God. What's ironic is during that wandering, like I was at many times doing godly things. Like seminary, you would think, is something that could put you closer to God. Ironically, it can do the opposite sometimes. Uh, what I do at church, like meeting with some of you all over coffee, hearing what God's doing in your lives, like that's great and loving, but sometimes I can focus on that more than God himself or whether it's going to community group and talking about the Bible week in and week out and seeing what is God doing in people's lives. And yet, all these things, all these good godly things, it's still so easy to wander off from God. Like, all, like some of you in this room understand that. Right? Whether it's a busy season at work, busy season at school, or like you're raising the kids, or just something's going on in your marriage. All these circumstances kind of slowly pile up and then all of a sudden you realize, wait, I, I haven't even like talked to God in two weeks. Or some of you are like, I haven't talked to God for two months, two years. Heck, I've never, I've never talked to God. But then there are other us, others of us in the, the room who immediately are like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm actually in like a good spot. So, so maybe this message is for like other people in the room. I think it's wrong to assume that just because things like that aren't going on in our life or just because we don't have some sort of obvious atrocious sin in our lives that we aren't prone to wander. It's funny that seasons of wandering almost always start when we're in a good spot. Isn't it funny when we think we're in a place where we won't wander off from God, we often do. And so that's often the first step is thinking you aren't prone to these kind of things, or you're in a spot where that kind of thing is not going to happen to you. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that just because you're in a good spot doesn't mean you need to not in some way, shape, or form recommit to God or remember God, remember his plans, purposes, and promises for you. So again, Jacob, through a series of decisions and circumstances, he's wandered off from God over the past 10 years. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 35. So first point, why is the Christian life a series of committing and recommitting? Because we are a wandering people. So in light of that, let's consider how to recommit or, or to commit. You can replace the word recommit with commit. If you hear and, and you haven't committed to God ever, you can replace this word and, and it functions the same way. How to recommit. Starting with verse one, I'm just gonna read part of this again. God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. 
So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them underneath the tree that was near Shechem. Skipping down to verse nine. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I'm God almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. So as we look at how Jacob recommitted in these passages, this part of the passage we just read, I think we see kind of two, two key ingredients, two key ingredients as to how to recommit to God or how to commit to God. We see repentance and then we see remembering God's promises and remembering who God says you are. We see repentance and we see remembering God's promises and who God says you are. So those two things, repentance. First one tells God, God tells Jacob to go to Bethel. If you remember, God already told Jacob to do this. And Jacob already promised that he would. Jacob already committed that he would go back to Bethel, go back to God, and he didn't do it. Like he settled in Shechem, which is just short of Bethel. Almost obeyed God. Almost stuck with his commitments. But almost obedience and almost sticking with your commitments isn't obedience and it isn't sticking with your commitments. And so this is Jacob saying, in a way, I have stopped short of what God has told me to do. I have stopped short of what God has called me to do. And we have wandered from God with these foreign gods and this impurity among us. Let us rid ourselves of them. Basically, what we have here is a picture of repentance. And repentance, it's, it's, it's almost like a dirty word these, these days, right? Like so many negative connotations with the word repentance. Urban Dictionary, which is the most reliable dictionary source, <laughs> defines, <laughs> defines it as a word screamed by psychotic priests. One laugh, one person that was funny. Come on, this is funny. A word screamed by psychotic priests. So, so many negative connotations with it. And I understand too, like religious leaders have, have misused it and mishandled it incredibly over the years. But we want to rightly define it within its biblical context and within um, this idea of what it means to be a Christian, right? One of the better ones I've seen, it's, it's from just from a Bible dictionary. It says this, repentance in its fullest sense is a term for a complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. A complete change of orientation involving a judgment upon the past and a deliberate redirection for the future. And so we see this in the way that Jacob tells his family to put the foreign gods away, right? To rid themselves of them and to purify themselves. He's essentially saying, repent, put these things away. Put the the way you have been living and the things you have been worshiping, put them away and get ready because we're going back to Bethel. We're going back to God. Now for us, like, I'm sure we wouldn't, well, maybe some, someone, I don't know. But most of us don't have kind of wooden carved idols that we worship that are the foreign gods among us. But we sure have functional gods, don't we? I think all of us have functional gods, don't we? What I mean by that, well, uh, Jerry Bridges says, says this about it. Sometimes we look to other things to satisfy and fulfill us, to save us. And whether we realize it or not, these things control us and we worship them. Or Tim Keller's kind of simpler definition uh, Functional gods can be good things that are sinfully made ultimate things. 
good things that we sinfully make ultimate things. So these are things like comfort, money, family, career, status, sex, video games, intellect. Things like that that we put at the top of our life and we pursue the most and that our life revolves around them more than it revolves around God. And just like wandering from God is subtle, so are our functional gods. Like they're subtle to us at least, right? They're never obvious to us, but let me tell you, they're really obvious to the people around you. So as as you think about that idea, I actually would encourage you, like go ask your best friend, go ask your spouse. Like, what is that in your life? I put my skin in the game with this last night as I was finishing this up. I went out to Ashlyn and my wife and I was like, hey, what's my functional God? Like no context either. She's just like, I hate being married to a pastor. Golly, what are you even talking about? <laughs> right? It's like, what's my functional God? And she told me. She's like, it's comfort. I see you get like angry and upset when things don't go the way you plan and it disrupts your peace. So yeah, you're right. Eric Raymond, who's a pastor, he's over in Watertown. Um, he has a good blog about this, and he has some good insight into like, figuring out what are your functional gods, what are the foreign gods that you need to put away. And he interestingly notes that like, the ads that you see on Google and Facebook might provide some insight into what your functional gods are. <laughs> yeah? Who thought that like, internet ads, like this Holy Spirit could use that to convict you? And he closes that blog with a series of, of questions, 15 questions, I'm not going to read them all. Um, but to just kind of help the Christian discern, what is the functional God in your life? What is the thing that you need to put away? So just questions that might help you are, what are you most afraid of? What are you most afraid of losing? What do you most long for? What do you complain about the most? What makes you the most angry? What is your functional God? What is the thing you need to put away and recommit yourself to God and put God as not just the center of your life, not just the main thing, but, but, but the thing, his plans, his purposes that direct your life, the life of your family. And so bringing this back full circle to repentance, what Jacob did and told his family to do with the, the ridding of foreign gods, what we need to do is repent of that. And to completely change, remember the definition, completely change our orientation from those things with judgment upon them. What I mean by that is not just saying, oh yeah, what I did was wrong, but but experiencing some sort of sorrow. That we were not living our lives the way that our creator intended for us to live. And that ought to break our hearts. And we were not treating the people in our lives the way that our creator intended for us to treat them. And that ought to break our hearts. And we ought to repent of that and look back on our sin and things like that with great sorrow and judgment, but then also a reorientation for for the future on God, his plans and his purposes. To be clear too, repentance is different than regret. Very different. Regret on its own is usually focused on the consequences, not the action itself. Recommitting to God involves Repentance. We also see in this passage, recommitting involves um, remembering God's promises and, and remembering who God says you are. Just again, verses 10 through 12. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob. Which is an interesting way to say that. But Israel shall be your name. 
So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. And then he reiterates the covenant promises. And this ought to sound familiar to you. Are you been tracking with us? God has said something very similar to before. He said something very similar to Abraham. He said something very similar to Isaac. Look at what he said to Abraham in, in Genesis 17, some hundreds of years prior. He said, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he's repeating himself. And, and even more than just to Abraham and then to Jacob again, this is the second time he says this to, to Jacob. Genesis 32, 10 to 20 years ago, he says verbatim, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. So what is God doing here? Like he's, he's reminding Jacob of his promises and he's reminding Jacob of who he says he is. And why does God do that again? Well, because Jacob needs to hear it again. Why is God teaching him the same lesson? Because Jacob needs to learn the same lesson again. Remember, the first part of the, the, the sermon was, we are a wandering people. We need to be brought back and reminded time and time and time again. Time and time and time again. And this is something God's pretty much done with every character we've seen, whether it's Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. And this is a God who does the same thing with us. Right? He wants us to come back to him. He wants us to recommit to him. And notice each of the times that God does this so far in Genesis, he doesn't scold the, the people that he calls back to himself. He doesn't like welcome them back, but then like a little angry on the backside. Like that doesn't happen. No, what does he do? He reminds them who he says they are. And I'm not saying like there might not be some sort of consequences or some sort of like lesson to be learned or difficult things to be faced when you kind of come back and you recommit to God. But to think that if, if you are coming back into God's presence for the first time in a long time, let's say you've had a really hard time and going to church has been really hard for you and um, you've just been unable to pray because whether it's anger or bitterness or circumstances in life make you angry at God, when you come back into God's presence, realize the heart of the Father towards you is not to scold you, it's not to be angry with you, it's not, to, it's not displeasure, it's the opposite. You want to know what the heart of God towards you when you come back into his presence is? Just look at the prodigal son, right? Luke 11, he, he takes his father's inheritance and all the good things and runs off and squanders it all entirely. And his life becomes essentially worthless. And he's eating with the pigs. And he has a moment where he thinks, you know what? Going back to my father, my father receiving me back, even though he'll be really angry, it'll be better to have an angry dad and be one of his servants than to eat with the pigs. But the way the father responds to the son in that story is the way God responds to us, to you, when you come back into his presence. You want to know what that father did? You know what God does? He celebrates and is glad. That's, that's the words that are used in Luke 11. The father celebrated. The father was glad that his son had come back. I can remember multiple conversations I've had over the years with people that just say something like, if I walked back into the church, the walls would be lit on fire. And it, it, it breaks my heart because that is not an accurate reflection of the heart of God towards someone that comes back to him. It's open arms. It's a celebration. It's gladness. And so if you're here and you think I am one of those people that like, 
I, it was a big step for me to even come here in the first place. All the sin that I have going on in my life, all the baggage, I haven't talked to God in years. Know that when you talk to God, he's overjoyed about that. He celebrates that. Don't get caught up in thinking that you got to straighten everything out for him to be pleased with you. Don't get caught up in thinking that you have to get your life in order and stop doing this or that or this or that, sinning in this way and that way before you can come and talk to God. No, God wants to help you work out those things with him. You can't do that on your own. That's the heart of God towards you. That's the heart of God when we recommit to him. Repentance and trusting God's promises and remembering who he says you are. Those are key ingredients, not the only ingredients, but they're the key ingredients we see in this passage. Last thing we'll talk about, we'll spend less time talking about this, I promise we're almost done, is what to expect. What to expect when you recommit to God or what to expect when you commit to God in the first time, for the first time. Because I think it might be tempting to, uh, for us to, to expect that like, if you recommit to God in any certain sense or kind of come back into his presence or commit to him for the first time, that everything's gonna go well from there on out. Like everything's kosher, right? Like, like it's all good now. Like God's on my side. That means things are gonna go well, right? Things are gonna go perfectly. The, the plans that I had are gonna work out. But our passage shows us otherwise. In fact, it shows us the opposite, right? What do we see in the last part of chapter 35? After Jacob recommits to God, we see a whole slew of just really tough things. We see death. We see betrayal. We see suffering. We see the prosperity, not of God's people, but of evil people, which we'll talk about in a second. But then we do see, we'll talk about this at the end, we do see God turning all things for good. So just skimming the last part of 35, we see the deaths of three people very close to Jacob. And this is after he recommits himself to God, after he recommits himself to God's plan, purposes, and power. We see Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, die. If you remember Rebecca, we were introduced to her way back. So this nurse has probably been with the family for a long time. And the fact that she's mentioned in scripture anyways probably means that she was of some significance to that family. And after that, we see Rachel, Jacob's wife, his favorite wife. There's no comment on that. She dies in childbirth. After that, Isaac, his father, dies. We also see betrayal. Like this, this little verse, 22, notes that one of Jacob's sons slept with Jacob's concubine. And the Bible doesn't say this. Like Rachel's already passed away, but like maybe Jacob's affections have been shifting or at the very least, like this is a power grab back in that day and maybe today too, like that would be interpreted as like I'm in charge now, that kind of move. And lastly, we see, we see the prosperity not of the people of God, but of their quote unquote enemies. So we're also covering chapter 36 today, which gets about 30 seconds of airtime. And if you read it, you'll see why. In chapter 36, we see Esau, if you remember Jacob's brother, his lineage, his, his descendants. And if you read it, one thing is obvious that they, they were prosperous. They had kings. They did well. Whereas Jacob's lineage, his family, eventually ends up in slavery. 
right, the next book of the Bible, Exodus, his family ends up in slavery to the Egyptians. But the final culmination of these two lines paints a picture of the two paths that these family have, families have, have taken. Right, King Herod in the New Testament, he killed every baby in a region under two in an attempt to kill Jesus. King Herod is a descendant of Esau. But Jesus, who could, killed sin on Herod's behalf, is a descendant of Jacob. And now there's some comfort in that. There's some comfort in that, right? Like, like we ultimately see God turning those things for good, all the death and the betrayal and the suffering, all the obstacles that were overcome. I was, I was talking to someone this week at the prayer meeting, 12 p.m. Thursdays, prayer meeting, Zoom, uh, at the prayer meeting, and she was just like, there are a lot of obstacles in my life, but the, the Lord has given me a word that these obstacles are actually opportunities for God to show his glory and his purpose through these things. And so we can take comfort in that, that when we come across hardships and obstacles, God uses them for his good and our good. And here's how he does that with Jacob. Here's how he does that. It's super cool. Just hang with me for a second. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nerd out a little bit. Because he doesn't do it in Jacob's lifetime. If you are here last week, remember there was an insanely powerful like, geographical connection between our passage in Genesis 34 and the woman at the well in, in John 4. If you remember, um, the thing that happened to Dinah happened in Shechem, and then the woman at the well, a thousand years later, who's given the proper care and compassion from Jesus, happens at Shechem and is a descendant, a relative of sorts to Dinah. Extremely powerful. There's another one here. Verse 21. Israel journeyed and settled by the Tower of Eder. And now, I have to imagine, with all the stuff we just talked about, the suffering, death, betrayal, the Tower of Eder, this, this all happened in and around that area. Like, this is probably kind of a tough place for Jacob. And I'm sure some of us here can understand, like, tough places, whether it's a bad memory or a hard, difficult moment where you got some bad news at a particular place, or like a more lighthearted one. Like, when I first moved here, I worked up in Peabody, and I hated my job, and I drove Route 1, like, every morning at 6.45 a.m., and so for the next three years, like, every time I got on Route 1, I, like, cringed a little bit. Like, something like that. I think we can all kind of understand, like... The Tower of Eder is not a great place for Jacob. Three deaths, the betrayal of one of his sons. The Tower of Eder is a place of sorrow for Jacob, but a thousand years later, God uses it as a place of great joy. This Tower of Eder, not that we would see it in this text, but it's in Bethlehem. In Micah 4, 8, another book in the Old Testament a prophet tells us this, tells us that the Messiah is revealed from that tower. It says, and you, O tower of the flock, which is the same translation as the tower of Eder, to you shall it come, the kingdom shall come. And so the tower of Eder is being painted as this, in this passage of, of Micah as a beacon of Christ, a beacon of light. Whereas before in Jacob's life, it was a place of darkness and pain and sorrow. A place of great sorrow and pain for Jacob is now a place of great joy for the world. God was doing something in the suffering and in the pain and in the betrayal of Jacob's life, but he couldn't see it. And it wasn't necessarily directly related to Jacob either. In some ways, Jacob suffered and was betrayed and dealt with death for the good of other people. That's a hard way to look at suffering in our own lives, but sometimes God uses it like that, for the good of others. 
And even deeper than that, even more kind of poetic than that. This tower, at the time when Jesus was born, the land around it would have been considered holy, like sacred land. Because this tower, they used that tower and the fields around it to raise and care for lambs who would eventually be sacrificial lambs, atonement for sin in the temple. And I did like a total deep dive into this, but I, on my personal conclusion I've come to, this is actually the place where Jesus was born. You look at various translations in the Greek and, and other things in the Hebrew as well, and it matches up. And so we can't say that for sure because the Bible doesn't give us that information. But I just imagine baby Jesus laying there, surrounded by the sacrificial lambs that eventually point to him being the sacrificial lamb on our behalf. To later be our holy sacrifice. This place of great sorrow and pain for Jacob, God turns into a place of great joy and freedom for his people. So as we close, just some final thoughts. So we continue to move along in Genesis. One thing I hope you've seen is that, that these men, these characters, these women, everyone that's involved are very broken. They're very broken who did imperfect and sinful things, who needed to recommit over and over and over again throughout the course of their entire lives to God. And not just them, but anyone in scripture too, throughout all the Old Testament and the New Testament, who we consider to be a model Christian or a model follower, so to speak, they had to recommit to God over and over and over again. They had to repent, they had to remember God's promises and they had to remember who God says they were. So why would we think we don't need to? Why would we think we don't need to? I'm gonna pray in a minute, and in that prayer, I'm just, I'm just gonna invite us all to recommit to God. Or maybe even commit to God and trust in Jesus for the first time. And before we do that, a few things about communion. Um, this is something we do every week to remember uh, how it's even possible to commit and recommit to God in the first place how it's even possible to repent and remember who God says we are in the first place and remember God's promises in the first place. It's through the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what this meal represents. And so at any point during this last song, you can head out in the hallway um, and take communion in the hallway and then come back in here. We can't have food or drinks um, in here, unfortunately. Um, and if you're not a Christian, this is the one part of service we just ask that you don't partake in. We think the Bible is clear that this, this is a sacrament, a, a, a thing that is done for people who are Christians. And so at any point in the next song, you can just, just kind of stay in your seats if that's you, or if it makes you feel more comfortable, you can just kind of walk around with everyone else and just walk right back in. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that we get the ability to love you because you first loved us. That we get the ability to recommit to you over and over again because you are eternally committed to us through Christ. So God, I just, for anyone in this room, God, who wants to commit to you for the first time, or wants to recommit to you again, recommit to your plans, your purposes, God. I pray that you stir our hearts to do just that. God, help us to live a life 
that is committed to you, a life that in humility we can time and time again say, God, I need to recommit to you over and over because I am a wandering people. And God, we're thankful that despite all that, your word has the final say. We're thankful that despite all that, your commitment to us has the final say. Help us remember these things. 